This is Daniel Gallardo, and you're listening to the Tenkara Cast, the podcast about the simple Japanese method of fly fishing, Tenkara. In the Tenkara Cast, I'll be sharing information with you on techniques, history, gear, and philosophies, as well as Tenkara stories from anglers all over the world. This podcast is brought to you by Tenkara USA, introducing Tenkara outside of Japan since 2009. It is only possible we create content such as this podcast and all the videos that we create because of your support, so we thank you so very much for purchasing Tenkara USA rods, lines, and flies. I hope you enjoy learning more about the simple Japanese method of fly fishing, Tenkara. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Tenkara Cast. My name is Daniel, and I'm very excited to have a guest on the show tonight, and that's going to be Corey Shiozaki. Corey is a filmmaker, he's been in the film industry for decades. Uh, and the film that we're going to be talking about is the Manzanar Fishing Club. And Corey, why don't you introduce us to the, the concept of the Manzanar Fishing Club and where the film, what the film is all about? Well, Daniel, thank you. First of all, I want to appreciate you inviting me to participate in this uh, podcast, I guess you might call it. And um, uh, what's happening now is there's been a lot of interest in the film for some reason, maybe because it did kind of touches upon what's going on, you know, with uh, currently within our admi- you know, administration of this country has been dealing with a lot of different issues. And some of it is dealing with the separation of, of families and whatnot. And I think it's appropriate that there are some similarities, although they're not exactly the same. But uh, I think in the respects of uh, uh, civil rights and freedoms uh, that we pretty much all accept or uh, we take for granted. And uh, the Mazinar Fishing Club kind of spawned from an idea that really didn't surface itself until about 2004. And to give a little background about the history of the incarceration, in 1941, February I'm sorry, uh, 1941, of course, there was, was the bombing of Pearl Harbor, which got the United States involved in World War II. And the following year in February, February 19th, uh, 1942, President Roosevelt signed an executive order, 9066, which basically uh, forcefully and removed uh, Japanese Americans and their families to about 120,000 in number, and incarcerated them in 10 concentration camps along the West Coast, but also inland. And so the West Coast was affected by this executive order. And what that did was people had the opportunity to leave the West Coast if they could secure work or a place to live inland. But for the majority of the Japanese Americans living on the West Coast, they had virtually nowhere to go. So they were rounded up and placed in first assembly centers throughout the West Coast. And then eventually, you know, they were placed in concentration camps. There were two in California, two in Arizona, one in Idaho, one in uh, Wyoming, one in Utah, 
and two in Arkansas, of all places. And my parents were among the 120,000 Japanese Americans that were forced removed from their homes. Unfortunately, I did not know about this until I was in college. And it was a history class that I was taking and the professor was from Ohio. And he starts out his opening lecture by saying, in 1941, the Japs bombed Pearl Harbor. I was taken aback because I was the only Japanese in this class. And all eyes were focused on me, uh, I guess, to see what kind of reaction. But you talk about a shrinking violet. I I just kind of sank down in my chair, not realizing what I had just heard from my professor of American history, of youth history. So I immediately went home and I confronted my parents, particularly my father, and I asked them, what the heck happened in 1942? I just learned that they incarcerated 120,000 Japanese Americans and their families and forced them into concentration camps. And my dad kind of uh, wanted to just dismiss this as something that was no big deal. But I took it much more personally, thinking, well, this is a violation of their civil rights that's uh, guaranteed in our Constitution. And this is also about the same time that the United States was at, in, in, a, in war in Vietnam. And I was of draft age. In fact, my draft number was 158. And I believe they went in that year of 1969, they went to uh, 250 something. I would have been drafted. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was very angry, for one thing, and very adamant and protest the war myself, our presence in Vietnam. So out of protest, I told my father that uh, I am going to, I choose uh, to go to Canada. And my dad was very upset. And I wondered why he didn't condone my thinking. And he told me, he says, one, you would bring shame to the family if you did that. And number two, Right or wrong, this is the only country I know. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, not a respect for my father, I decided to make changes in my plans, and I actually enlisted and served six years in the U.S. Army during that time. Mm-hmm. But all along, you know, this always this thought of their incarceration has plagued my development growing up. And I, at that point, I was, I said, I. I, I swore that I was going, at some time in my life, I'm going to make a film about the story my parents never told me. And before we get into that, Corey, and first of all, thanks for your service. And it's amazing that you went and you did that, you know, when you were feeling so much, I guess, anger, you know, which it would be understandable or resentment or whatever emotions you're feeling. But I, uh, I think I didn't do a particularly good job at uh, introducing you to this episode and the relationship that uh, the Mazanara Fishing Club and the internment camp will have with fishing. You know, so uh, a lot of times people are logging into this podcast to learn about something related to fishing. So I kind of want to share a little bit of that background and then we can get into the 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 film so i've known you i think since it was probably 2000 and 
12? Is that when the Mazanar Fishing Club came about? That's correct. Yeah, so like you, you know, you caught my attention because you were doing this research and there was some information about a film that was going to be talking about fishing in an internment camp. And, you know, so we've known each other for a long time. And, um, and it was just one of these stories that ties the human rights that we are continually, you know, we have to kind of seek ways to, to ensure that uh, human rights are followed for everybody, for every community. Uh, but it ties that with fishing. And, and I think that's kind of a lot of times um, we need that kind of entry point you know, like, or some of us needs need an entry point to learn about a particular topic such as this, and and that's why I wanted to bring you here. So uh, it was last year we had the Tenkara Summit, and I brought you and uh, Richard Yamamura, uh, Imamura as the keynote speakers for the the event uh, because it was just talking about this thing that we all have in common. You know, in the fly fishing community, we're all very interested in fishing, but then talking about this history, this slightly dark or this dark side of the of a history that also has to do with fishing, which kind of brings, um, you know, some, I think, a connection, a deeper connection. So that's I, I just kind of want to make sure I cover that. But why don't we um, why don't you tell us a, about, you know, so there's the internment camp um, situation and, you know, which is I mean, why don't you tell us about that? What? That might have been like you know for the people that were um interned and and i understand your parents were interned as well and then where did where did the fishing come in well when i learned about this whole episode in our american history about the forced removal and incarceration of americans of japanese ancestry i knew that i wanted to be able to tell that story so after I got out of the service, you know, I, when I went back to college, uh, I, I was a film, television, and radio major. I got my degree in radio, TV, and film. And all along, I was, my ambition was to create some sort of film about the incarceration. But years have gone by since, you know, I graduated. In fact, my my senior film project was about Manzanar, which was the very first concentration camp that was established. You know, like I said earlier, there were a total of 10 of these facilities that the government, uh, it was was developed by what at the time by a commission by the War Relocation Administration, the WRA. And Manzanar was the first of these camps to be erected. And back when I was in college in 1969 and up to 72, I actually went on a pilgrimage to Manzanar for the very first time in my life. And unfortunately, there's really nothing there. The, the remains of the of completely have been, you know, the structures have been removed and whatnot. And the only... Three remaining structures were two stone guardhouses or guard shacks and a gymnasium. And the rest of the barracks and everything else were removed from the site. So there really wasn't much there to even indicate that there was a concentration camp there. But the, when it was erected, there was actually guard towers placed every 
half mile. There were eight guard towers, and they had armed guards with machine guns and searchlights and the whole thing. It's just like what you would expect from a uh, prison. So in 1972, I went on my first pilgrimage. And then after I got out of college, I started uh, my career in film and eventually became a newsreel cameraman, which led to me uh, to the joining the International Cinematographers Guild, which I recently just retired after 37 years as a member of the Cameraman's Union. And But during that time, uh, I've always wanted to make a film. But it wasn't until 2004 that I had the opportunity to visit Manzanar when they opened up their interpretive center because they had become part of the national parks and they had an interpreter center and there was uh, an exhibit with photographs taken by this famed portrait photographer named Toyo Miyatake from downtown Los Angeles. And his most of his clients or uh, customers were people from the community from Los Angeles. But he was rounded up too, as well as 10,000 others. And he was not allowed to bring any, there was contraband. You couldn't bring flashlights or any kind of knives or cameras or anything like the radios. So cameras were on the list of contraband items. But Toyo, as being a photographer, realized that if he just snuck in a lens and some film holders, technically he didn't bring, he didn't try to bring a camera in. Mm -hmm. And when he arrived, he found a carpenter to build him a box camera out of scrap wood. And they were able to find an old drain pipe and thread it. And they used that to put the, the lens in. So he was able to rotate it to focus. And then he had these film holders, these four by five film holders. And later he was able to acquire film and he would shoot photographs secretly without the, the authorities knowing what he was doing. And his main reason for doing that is he wanted to record history so this thing would never happen again. So his photographs are among the photographs that you'll find in archives along with another famous photographer who was commissioned by the governor of government, the WRA, the War Relocation Authority. And this photographer, his name is Ansel Adams. Hmm. So many of, uh, of us are very familiar with the photography of Ansel Adams and also Dorothea Lang was another commissioned photographer to record hmm. you know, what is happening during this time. And actually, Ansel Adams and Toyo Miyatake became friends. So that was kind of an interesting uh, side story, but so getting to the bout of fishing, Toyo was actually uh, an avid fly fisherman himself in civilian life. But while he was taking these uh, photographs secretly, uh, he happened to have a neighbor in living in the same block. So yet Manzanar, there was 36 blocks. And, you know, do you divide up, you know, the population of 10,000? So roughly maybe 500 people or, you know, 200 people would live in these 
blocks, and his neighbor was a guy only known as Ishikawa, the fisherman. One day, Ishikawa came back to camp after he snuck out for staying out for two weeks at a time, and he brought back some golden trout. Well, any angler who's familiar with trout fishing in the eastern Sierra knows that these trout are very elusive and they can only be caught in higher elevations above 8,000 feet. Manzanar is about at 4,000 feet. So for this man to get these fish was an incredible feat in itself. And when he came back to camp with these fish, they were so you know unusually different than, say, like the rainbows and the brown trout that were caught locally near the camp that Toyo went and grabbed his camera and started snapping off pictures of this man named Ishikawa. Mm-hmm. And... We didn't know Ishikawa's first name for the first, you know, seven or eight years of the project. We found out much later after you know, we were starting the, our work and research that his first name was Heihachi. So Heihachi Ishikawa comes back with these golden trout and Toyo takes these photographs. And it was one of the photographs that was on display when the Mansonar Interpreter Center had their grand opening in 2004. I happened to be up in that area because I was a seasonal resident of Bishop, and I was working at Crawley Lake as a as a guide. So I was guiding from 2004 to 2008, but in 2004, this photograph was on display, and, I, and it really piqued my interest because how in the heck did this guy, for one thing, get trout, and then on top of that, you know, it was able to bring back golden trout to the camp. That's amazing, and that's the and that's the famous photo of um, you know where we have the the orange sky, the red sky behind, and the tower uh, that you guys use for the cover of the film, right? Yes. Yeah, that's a beautiful one. And uh, and would it be okay to use that photo for for the podcast for us to post that? Oh yes, as long as you um, provide the photo credit, I. I, I, you know, you, you can have the permission to use it because that's one of the um, licensing agreements we have with the the family who owns the collection. Oh yeah, no, absolutely, and um, yeah, and I'll get the details from you. But it is a very poignant photo, you know. It's just a, uh, and and let's talk a little bit about that. So you know, we we talked about the Manzanar fishing camp, you know, being at four thousand feet, and why don't we talk a little bit about the fishing, you know, besides, you know, there's the story of this angler, um, Ishikawa, but there was a lot of people that were sneaking out of the club to go fishing. So why don't you give us a setting here, Manzanar, and what kind of fishing is around there? Because I, I used to fish uh, in the Easter Sierras once in a while, but I'd love to have our listeners kind of get a, a picture from you. Okay. Well, when the order came down that these people were going to be assigned to live at Manzanar, some of the people had already had the experience of fishing in the Eastern Sierra. With that knowledge, they were able to prepare themselves by buying some light tackle like leader line, uh, some sinkers, some swivels, some, some fishing hooks, and they brought them with them. And knowing that this area was abundant in trout, they uh, 
snuck out as early as the first week that they were there. They figured it out, how to get around the security of the camp. One of the fellows that was probably most popular guy that was known to do this was Ken Miyamoto, who's also featured in the film, The Mansonar Fishing Club. And Ken was quite a character, as you will see in the movie. He went fishing almost every day. And he had a tremendous amount of uh, success getting out of camp. He was a very resourceful guy. I mean, this guy, he, he was a real hustler. He met people and he made wheels and deals and he figured it out how to get out of camp in, in a variety of different ways. One, he was uh, a mess hall cook. Two, he was a tractor mechanic. And three, he was also working for the voluntary police department. You see, the security at Manzanar, like other camps, the military police, their jurisdiction was guarding everything outside the bob wire. And each camp were very similar in, in its layout. It was a mile square of bob wire and with the camp barracks and all the different uh, things that, that uh, the people needed, like a mess hall, a laundry room. They had a hospital and those kind of things. And uh, they were, he was able to get out quite easily. And I want to make sure people understand too. So the, the getting out, so people were in this concentration camp and life is pretty tough. And I, you know, from the film, which by the way, we're going to be posting the link. Um, I haven't mentioned it yet, but the film is available for free streaming until July 4th. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah, so I'll make sure to put a link uh, to the film on our podcast page at tenkariose.com forward slash podcast. And you can also go to fearnotrout, uh, fearnotrout.com to find Corey's information. But going back to the camp, you know, during the concentration camps, there is uh, guard towers around, uh, you know, they're trying to keep people in there. So it's this is not a low risk activity by any means, right? I mean, there were he was really risking his life by doing that, wasn't he? Particularly in the first 18 months, security was very high. As a matter of fact, within the first year, there was a riot in which two uh, people were shot, uh, two people were killed and shot and died of their wounds. And that was on December 6, 1942. And the media touted this was a Pearl Harbor celebration, but that's not actually why uh, there was a riot. It actually started out as a demonstration in protest for missing food that wasn't you know, being stolen from the mess halls and being sold in the black market. But there was a riot ensued, and that's when the military police were called in to quell the riot. And our, our interviews with a actual military police that was present at the time said off camera, unfortunately I couldn't get it on camera, but off camera, he said when uh, this demonstration seemingly was getting out of hand, the soldiers just fired aimlessly into the crowd. And two people, like I said, were one was a 16-year-old and another was a 21-year-old young man that died from his wounds. So that there was imminent danger and risk involved. But yet, these guys would still take the risk because to them, being cooped up and locked up behind Bob Wire 
you know, it was something that they they needed a form of normalcy, and they found that through fishing. You know, I'm, I'm guessing that that seems to be a common thread among anglers. There's that feeling of freedom that you get when you're out there on the water fishing. And this is the kind of feeling that they all welcome you know, as a form of relief so they wouldn't have to, you know, keep thinking about, you know, uh, their bad situation being incarcerated. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. I mean, it is, uh, that's what I, you know, I get from the film and they have so much hardship going on that fishing is the normalcy. It was probably one of the only normalcies that they were able to find one or one of the very few. Um, how many people do you think were sneaking out of the camp to go fishing at that time? Because you've, you know, you interviewed several people um, for the film. Was that a substantial number of them, or is it just a couple? Or well, it was very difficult when we started researching this in two thousand four, two thousand six. Um, there was a a lot of these uh, internees were actually passing away, and so the amount of survivors left. At the time we started the research, started dwindling in numbers. We were able to interview about a dozen surviving internees that had a story that related to their fishing experience at Manzanar. Some of them were even as young as like eight years old, and the the oldest was in his fifties. Uh, Ishikawa was fifty three. And so the, we had a, unfortunately, we never got a chance to interview Ishikawa in person because he had passed away years before we started the project. But his grandson was able to tell the stories of his grandfather catching the golden trout. But we had about a dozen people that still had vivid memories of their experience fishing. And some of them even uh, were at risk. One One of the individuals his name was Mizutani and he he tried to sneak out and uh, a guard took a shot at him at the wire and he's he decided well this is not a good day to do it but he you know he decided he'll wait a couple of days and but that didn't stop him he went out again anyway so you know trying to, to leave the camp you know people were so desperate that they were willing to take those risks but in the, in the beginning, you know, the, there was a, in the southwest corner of Manson, there was actually a creek that ran through the camp and that had some fish, but people would go out, they wanted to go outside the camp. So they snuck out about the, the point where the creek entered the camp in the southwest corner because it was kind of hidden from the, from the uh, guard tower and they were able to sneak out there. That was the most popular place. where a friend of mine, a woman, uh, was talking about how she had an experience over the weekend of some man kind of giving her a hard time about fishing or something. And and I kind of remember the film also had women, right? It was not a, fishing was not a, an exclusively a male thing in this, in this film, in the story of the fishermen and fisherwomen, right? Um, do I remember that correctly, that there were also women that were getting out and sticking yes, out to go fishing? Yeah, we often wondered whether or not the women were participating. And we were lucky to record or film two survivors, two females who went fishing. They snuck out as well. Um, we guessed that 
there was might have been about 300 people in total that uh, went fishing at one time or another. But in the very early life of the camp, let's say in the first year or so, it was a very small numbers because people were st- still concerned about the security risks. So they didn't want to try or attempt to go out the wire knowing that there was always a possibility of them getting either you know, killed or injured for doing that. But others were willing to take the risk. Yeah, and, and, when, and when I first approached you, you know, it was like in the beginning of Tenkari Yosei, and my, I think my first question to you was, do you know if the, by any chance they're doing thing? Any of them were doing Tenkara at the time? Uh, I, I don't think we ever got an answer. But can you tell us, you know, what type of fishing they were doing for to catch fish? I mean, was it bait, lures? What did you learn from their methods of catching fish? Well, in the beginning, as you can imagine, equipment was very difficult to acquire. So in the beginning, like I mentioned. Those who had the savvy to bring their own leader line and, and, and sinkers, split shots, what, and hooks were able to go fishing almost immediately. So they would fashion fishing poles out of whatever they can find, like a willow branch or something, much akin to, like say, like Tom Sawyer or Huck Finn. They just tied a line to a stick and threw out you know, the line with a hook with some worms on it. In the, in the local creeks, and they were able to catch fish. As camp life uh, continued, they were uh, the internees were able to utilize mail-order catalogs from Steers and Roebuck and Montgomery Wards, and they were actually ordering fishing quit from the catalogs. And they, of course, were the, what the most modern-day equipment that was available at the time. So some of them actually got split bamboo rods and and reels and creels and bait cans and lures and some people were fly fishing with uh with uh spinners uh lures and so there was a variety of different ways of fishing the kind of equipment but it started out very primitively and kind of evolved when they were able to buy equipment from the from the catalogs yeah i would suspect that somebody or another probably made a a makeshift and cut a rod and a fly with some feather that they found that's uh i always imagine you know we'll never know for sure but uh, well you know according to one of the guys i mentioned earlier ken miyamoto he was a cook and and around all the mess halls they always had bamboo rakes well ken would would take these bamboo rakes and split them and make his own jointed fishing rod out of bamboo and he, he fashioned a system of like fly casting, only he didn't have a reel. So he would wrap line on a tin can, but he would use that the, the type of technique he used with fly fishing, you know, 10 and 2, 10 and 2, and throw out his line and cast a makeshift fly setup from his split bamboo pole. Amazing. That's incredible. Um, in in terms of the, the, you know, how far they had to go. So we had the story of uh, Ishikawa, who probably had to hike for. I mean, I, I'm. I think you might have mentioned to me before that he was gone for days to catch those uh, golden trout because he had to get pretty high up into the heart of the Sierra, the eastern Sierras, essentially, to find those golden trout. But 
and, and also you mentioned there was a little creek, you know, going through the camp at some point. But once they snuck out, how far from the camp did, did they have to go to catch any fish? Well, pretty much during that time, it was called the Department of Fish and Game. Now it's called Department of Fish and Wildlife. Well, the Department of Fish and Game continually stocked those local creeks. I have actual fishing stocking reports from Mount Whitney that they stock very heavily the local streams and creeks adjacent to Mantanar. So there was plenty of trout to be caught. And if you can imagine, since you know it was during wartime, that the locals uh, weren't really interested in going anywhere close to the camp because they always thought of these people in behind barbed wire as some uh, sort of threat because they were not really aware that these were just like Americans, like your neighbors, you know, but in their mind, you know, like the hysteria and the propaganda kept them away from the camp. So these local creeks and streams that abounded with, with uh, trout were a fair game for the guys who were able to sneak out and go out and get them. So there's a couple of creeks that are very close to Mantanar that were popular fishing creeks. Uh, there was George to the south and Shepherd Creek to the north and uh, Independence Creek to the north, Sims Creek, and uh, Lone Pine Creek to the south of Mantanar. So there was a half a dozen or so creeks that were just filled with fish. And they had to be uh, sneaky, not only to not spook the fish, but to not be caught by the guards. Because I, uh, I would imagine if they're standing out there, they could be caught. Once they were able to leave the camp within about a mile, uh, usually they there was no real big threat of them getting caught. Uh, the, the military did have jeeps and they did patrol, but uh, it was one of these things that it didn't seem like a likely thing that these guys would be doing is to sneak out to go fishing. So it wasn't like a priority uh, to watch these guys. However, as the war started to wind down, uh, security got lax and, or relaxed, let's say, and they, the, the guards pretty much took a blind eye to these guys leaving camp to go fishing. So that was an, uh, an issue towards the end of the war. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Well, you know, I think I, I would really like to encourage our listeners to watch the film, you know, which is, st- again, streaming for free until July 4th. And after that or during that time, they can also find on Fear No Trout and we'll have a link uh, to your website where they can buy a copy of the DVD so they can have that. But I, you know, it's it's a very timely film, uh, just as we kind of alluded uh, in, in the conversation you know there's this struggle with human rights where there always seems to be one group or another that is facing some kind of prosecution and and uh, you know and nowadays we have a lot of talks about you know black life matter uh, black lives matter and also a lot of talk about the fact that maybe sometimes fly fishing doesn't feel very inclusive uh to different communities um, so I think there's a lot of uh, food for thought, you know, that this film can bring up. And I want to encourage our listeners to critically think about this and, you know, realize that we have this sport, this beautiful activity of fishing that 
it is much more than just fishing. Sometimes it's a refuge to people. Sometimes it's a little bit of a, uh, a glimmer of hope or dignity. And hopefully it's something that more and more groups of people uh, can feel included and safe and, uh, you know, just really enjoying participating without um, fear of prosecution, fear of racism and so forth. So I, that's kind of my, my, my soapbox, my message here uh, on the film and the timeless timeliness of it and the inclusion, but definitely also like just kind of knowing about the, the history and hopefully really stop repeating history because that's what seems to always keep happening. <laughs> um, so I, I appreciate you making this, you know, sharing the story. I appreciate you you know going after it and bringing this thing that we kind of all love of fishing and combining that with a, a history uh, that i think people should know so um but i think it's an important story to tell can i just add one more thing uh daniel oh please besides yeah. our website uh fearnotrout.com where they could uh, find more information about the film and they can also order online. Um, we'd like to ask your your listeners if they would uh, find us on Facebook and like us on Facebook. How do, uh, how do the uh, listeners find you on Facebook? And I'll put a link as well on our podcast, but what is they the can Go to their search box and type in the Mantanar Fishing Club and we have a little fan page and we... Um, Update the, uh, the fan page regularly with different activities and events that uh, we have seminars or we show f- we have screenings. Uh, I just got a, an email today, an invitation to a club up in the, the Bay Area, uh, Golden Gate something. You know, they wanted to have a, a virtual screening. So we, we, we get uh, asked often, at least two or three times a year, to, to do presentations, even schools. We, one of the things we've done in the, recently in the past four years, we get asked back to make a presentation to uh, 150 or so fourth graders from the Pat Nixon Elementary School in Cerritos. So we have an outreach program that we, you know, like to present to the community or fishing clubs, you know, casting clubs, whatever, uh, churches, Boy Scouts. So we're still very active as far as, you know, wanting to share this film with whoever would like to, uh, you know, take advantage of it. So if they go on our website, uh, I mean, our fan page, or, you know, if they want to contact me, maybe you can leave my email address and, if you know if there's somebody that wants to you know have a presentation for their high school or college or church or whatever, we'd be happy to to make a presentation for them. Yeah, no, I'm very glad you brought that up, and I think a lot of listeners are part you know does a podcast or part of a fly fishing club or another, and I, I think that's a terrific presentation to have. I uh, you know it's very different from the usual. Uh, presentations that you would have so right now virtual presentations but maybe later on in person but hopefully everybody will share the story it's an important one um and yeah it's um that's what you know when we brought you over you know to colorado it was your first time presenting that in colorado and it was it was incredible to see the number of people uh during the tankata summit that had relatives that were interned or eventually moved to Colorado and you know so I think it's all over the country you can find 
some kind of connection um, yeah, to the to the story that's going to resonate with people. Uh, but absolutely, we'll put uh, the the link to your Facebook page as well. Uh, hopefully, people will um, be interested in sharing that story um, and watch the film. You know, that's uh, uh, there's we mostly wanted to introduce people to the film here, get them interested, so that they will go take a time and. Uh, Watch this beautiful film that you created with uh, Richard Imamura as well. But yeah, but thanks so much for your time. Uh, this was, uh, I'm glad we connected today. It was a last minute. Uh, let's jump on the phone and talk about this and share it. And uh, hopefully um, people enjoy the film that you created. Well, thank you, Daniel, for having me as your guest. Well, thanks so much. And we'll uh, talk to you later. Okay. Tight lines. <laughs> yes, tight lines indeed. And as always, I'd like to especially thank Takenobu. Nikogawa, also known as Takenobu, provides a lot of the music that we use on this podcast, as well as a lot of Tenkari USA videos. You can find his music at takenobumusic.com. And this is the song Tokidoki.